This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 8.15 and 10.30 a.m. for Holy Communion and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Please enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. This line in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 of God to the high priest Eli occurred in the midst of a pronouncement of judgment, a prophecy of judgment upon the house of Eli. After reading Hannah's prayer and song of praise of joy last week at the birth of her son Samuel and giving Samuel to God to serve the Lord, we encounter today the rest of chapter 2. We go from the joy of her words of thanks, bringing up the weak, to now the status of those in power in Israel. The contrast, as we read today, is chilling. We have Samuel as someone not coming from the priestly tribe of Levi, given to God's service under the care of Eli. And then we have Eli and his sons born into their positions. Entitlement in the things of this world, if that is the focus, always end in despair. And what we read in these words of Holy Scripture today in the conduct of Eli's sons. Knowing we are only dust, and to dust we shall return means we must trust in God to raise us from such mire to his loving service. To love him, to love others, to remain humble, to remain thankful. Eli's sons forgot the part about being dust and lost the sense of grace. They lost the sense of gratitude. This morning, let us look at this last part of chapter 2 to seek God constantly in clinging to his son, Jesus Christ, that has saved us from our sins, that indeed is our only true and faithful priest. Verses 12 through 17, I think, is best understood through the, word, through the end of verse 12, speaking of the sons of Eli. They did not know the Lord. This is a most disturbing statement as these were men born into the priesthood. These men by their birth were guaranteed a spot to serve the Lord as Levitical priests. That was their job. This phrase of not knowing the Lord explains the four descriptions of these faithless priests that we see in this section. First, in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And second, in verse 14, this key phrase, take for himself. Third, at the end of verse 16, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Fourth, in verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. All of these actions were in direct Rebellion against the commands of God concerning the offerings that were given to God from his people, as we read in Leviticus, the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy. 
The word worthless in this passage permeates every single description of these young men. This word worthless in Holy Scripture can mean good for nothing, unprofitable, a base fellow. The use of this particular word is used in the rest of the Old Testament for the most base and perverted men. Men that are bent on violence, men that are bent on sexual deviancy, and so forth. We see the sons of Eli exhibit all levels of this depravity that span this definition. In this section, we see the violence in taking the offerings of the people by force and amounts that are forbidden by God. We will see the other side of this term later in verses 22 through 26. All of these sordid attributes define these men in the case that they did not know the Lord. These were not descriptions of men that were struggling against their sins, that were trying to repent, that were trying to get help, that were trying to get out of the mire. These are descriptions of men sold fully to sin as slaves to sin and full rebellion against God and his people. These are men that justified their sins so that they could continue to live in their sin. As we've seen in 1 Samuel so far, these events occurred in the time of the judges, where the people did what was right in their own eyes. They did what they pleased. And here the high priest's sons, the leaders of the people, did what was right in their own eyes. While their father as the high priest was old and feeble, they did what suited their basest desires, serving their greed. Truly, they did not know God. Here we have an example of spiritual leadership doing as they pleased, having great contempt for God. It is no wonder that the people in this time period followed suit and how they lived and how they treated God and how they treated each other. They had no respect for God. They had no respect for anyone. Bishop Jeremy Taylor in the 17th century wrote the following about the leaders of nations, about leadership in general. He said, no man shall ever be fit to govern others that knows not first how to obey. For if the spirit of a subject be rebellious in a prince, it will be tyrannical and intolerable. And if so ill example, that is, it will encourage disobedience of others, so it will render it unreasonable for him to exact of others what in the life case he refused to pay. For the sons of Eli, they refused to obey God and even the word of their father, as we'll read later. Yet they were in a position of authority. When leadership is lawless at any level, the people will follow suit. We live in similar times in the church with popular swaths of so-called Christianity leader, Christian leaders living in vast luxury with private jets, mansions to live in, or by not knowing the Lord through supporting every vice of our culture, whether it's sexual deviancy or abortion. We have ministers that either seek wealth through heresy or that seek the approval of this culture, this pagan culture, through embracing every sin that makes us nothing more than depraved beasts. Verses 18 through 21 provides us with God's answer to the pride and the haughtiness of Eli's sons, of all those that minister that do not know God. His answer to all of this is not strength, it's not power, it's not might. His answer to all of this is weakness. 
the meek that he brings up to serve him, to serve his people. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God did this even in a way that would make the self-righteousness in us cringe. We would ask, how could God allow the unworthy priest Eli to raise such an important prophet and judge in his faith? Did not Eli fail with his sons? The answer is that God works in his grace by his son to atone for our sin. He works not through our works. He doesn't work through our merits. He doesn't work through how highly we think of ourselves. He works in his grace alone. Verse 18 opens this section providing a most welcome respite from the depraved imagery of the sons of Eli. We read, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Notice here the stark contrast. Eli's sons, born into the ministry, entitled, were not ministering at all, but were serving self. Service to God begins, if you think about it, in the very smallest of things in life. The small things, as we read with little Samuel in the house of the Lord. It is why all elements of our own worship service are critical. Whether seen with the service of our acolytes that light the candles that carry the book, that help the musicians and so forth, those that are seen, or whether those that serve with the altar guild that set up our communion and clean every week, all of these are elements of service that are needed in the house of God. And this is what Samuel did to begin. Service, whether seen or unseen, must be entered with gratitude, with humility, seeking Jesus Christ in everything we do for him. With Samuel, even as a young boy, he ministered to God. His parents, as we read, brought him a little robe each year when they brought the yearly sacrifice. Surely, if you think about it, his parents encountered the depraved sons of Eli as well. Yet upon the entrance into God's house, they encountered God at work still, through their son, through a flawed high priest teaching and leading their boy in God. Eli, at the end of this section, blessed Hannah, as we read, and she ended up having five children, a true blessing of God. See, God works even in circumstances we do not understand, as he did here with Samuel. He elevates those the world would reject in place of those that are strong, that are proud, that are in rebellion to God. He did so even in ways we would probably object to with the use of Eli. Yet God works through the weak. God works through the flawed to fulfill his purpose. He works by his grace, not according to our emotions, not according to our merits, not according to our works, and not even according to our flawed ideas about how we think God should do things. It is by his grace. Verses 22 through 26 switches us back to the horrible conduct of these sons of Eli. Earlier, we read of the proof of not knowing God as worthless men in terms of violence, taking what they wanted when they wanted it, in contempt of God's order. This rebellious attitude to the law of God degenerated from taking food to what we read in verse 22, shockingly. And he, speaking of Eli, kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
The sons of Eli were acting like the pagan culture around them through mixing sexual deviancy with their worship, with their sacrifice. All the Canaanite religions of that time had this practice. Here Eli's sons showed they merely were taking what they pleased from the surrounding culture and religions as they treated the priestly ministry as a personal way to advance themselves through wealth and self-gratification. Often when a culture or even parts of the church rebel against God's word through breaking the commandments they want to break, sexual immorality becomes normal. It becomes allowable. It finds willing participants. When such happens in the church through promotion, even from the ministry, it's a sign such ministers are nothing more than modern day sons of Eli. The start of this section stated, now Eli was very old. When we, and when we then read that Eli confronted his sons with these words, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. He asked them why they were sinning. He then, in case they wanted to deny such, came up with multiple witnesses that told him what was occurring. In addition, news of this conduct was spreading to the entire nation. Think about it. In a time such as the judges, where people did what they wanted to do, where the nation was constantly wavering in terms of faithfulness, true reports that the priests were taking advantage of God's offerings would bring more distrust would bring less and less people to the house of God to sacrifice, would draw more and more people to pagan deities. Eli, in challenging his sons, then states that when a person sins against another person, God will mediate for him. Yet when someone sins against God as his son sinned, we read this, who can intercede for him? Ultimately, the answer to this question arrives arrived with the coming of the Son of Almighty God, Jesus Christ, our great, our perfect high priest. See, Eli, in going to his sons, could not change his sons. He couldn't do it. No one can change another person. Only God can change us. We are called, though, to challenge one another. We are called to pray for one another. And most of all, what most of us don't like to do we are called to wait on God. As we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 today, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In the case here, the Lord would not wait very long to take action. The end of verse 25 states, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of God to put them to death. Often we take such verses with shock, with disbelief. Yet if you think about it, God's mercy shines here in dealing with two priests that rejected him openly, repeatedly, and were openly harming the sheep. As our good shepherd, part of the role God fills is to ward off the dangerous beasts that seek to devour his sheep, that seek to lead his sheep astray. In the case of these two, warding off these ravenous wolves was what they would be put to death, ending their reign of deviant and harmful terror upon God's people. 
God is our good shepherd, not only finds us when lost, he also protects us. He also seeks relentlessly to defend his flock from the evil beasts of this world bent on devouring us. It was a mercy to end the wicked actions of these men before things became worse, as would have happened when Eli died and these men took their role. C.S. Lewis wrote, Every uncorrected error and unrepented sin is, in its own right, a fountain of fresh error and fresh sin flowing on to the end of time. This section ends again with a snapshot of God bringing up the meek to replace the powerful, those that felt entitled by their birth to do as they pleased. We read that the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. While the sons of Eli turned out to be wolves in sheep's clothing, hirelings, not willing to repent, God was raising up a boy, weak, young, to serve his people. The last and longest section of our lesson has a man of God going to the high priest Eli to speak to him prophetically about what was going on. This section, I believe, is exemplified in verse 30. Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Eli and his sons did not honor God. They did not know God. They despised God. In verse 29, even though Eli confronted his sons earlier, we read that Eli honored his sons above God. He fattened himself with his sons on the choicest parts of those offerings that were meant from God. Eli's question to his sons did not come with a plea for them to stop. It did not come with a plea for them to repent. All he said was why they were doing such things. He did not call them to stop. God stepped in where Eli would not. The result was Eli's entire house would be removed from their responsibility and another priest would fill the role. Eli's house would go from taking what they pleased when they wanted it to a place of begging for mere bread. God promised through the man of God in this closing section that he would indeed care for his people. He would indeed raise godly men to serve him and his people. In the context of all that was happening, the grace of God was being raised up slowly and surely through a young boy and his future of leading God's people back to him. When we encounter passages such as today's, we must be careful we do not go in our normal reaction of saying, I could do it better. Rather, in seeing all occurring in terms of these worthless sons of Eli bent on continuing to sin with reckless abandon while acting as priests, we see God sought to act in mercy to defend the flock as our great warrior. In the midst of all this, Samuel is coming up in the ministry of God, eventually instrumental as the Lord's prophet and Lord's judge to anoint David, the ancestor of the greatest king prophet, and priest of all to forever save us in Jesus Christ. May we be cautious. May we be humble as we live, seeking to know God in an age that despises the knowledge of God. Let us minister to the Lord and to each other in an age that strives to serve and please self. 
Let us be humble and repentant when called upon in an age that believes sin is a right to exploit. Let us cling to Jesus, honoring him and each other alone in an age where honoring self is the norm. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Amen.